0: This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to Saint Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now with whom I am well pleased. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. So, Emily, Eric, and Noah, you are today bravely embarking upon a wild and holy adventure as you join the rest of us in affirming your baptismal identities and committing yourselves to a life centered in Christ. We call it a rite of confirmation in part because you are confirming your baptismal promises to love God and to love your neighbor. But perhaps more importantly, we call it confirmation because today God in Christ through the church, is confirming his love for you and his deep desire to lead you into all truth, goodness, beauty, and justice. Now, will this make a practical difference in your life? The answer to that question really depends upon you and whether in the months and years ahead you allow Christ to change the way you see and act in the world, to become more like him. Let me show you what I mean with a thought experiment that illustrates the shift in perspective that comes with the Christian life. Let's all imagine for a second that like Emily, Eric, and Noah, we're in high school again. Our school holds an annual spelling bee competition. The winner each year receives a $10,000 scholarship award to help with future college expenses. The preliminary rounds are now over, and the field has been whittled down to five contestants. Not being a terribly good speller, you were eliminated long ago. But your best friend Mary is among the finalists. Mary comes from a poor family, so she is especially excited by the prospect of winning the scholarship. The trouble is that Mary's zeal to win has gotten a little out of hand. Somehow she has surreptitiously put her hands on the secret list of words which will be used in the final round, and she has memorized them. Because you are her best friend, she has confided in you about this. When you first found out about her cheating plan, you tried to dissuade her from following through with the scheme, but she is determined to win. Since it is a small school, you also know the other four finalists, all of whom have been honestly preparing for the competition. Question. Knowing what you know, do you turn Mary in for cheating or not? Now this simple hypothetical case study is one I used back in the day when I was a high school chaplain and teacher, teaching a course in moral reasoning. The hypothetical, as you might guess, is designed to teach young people how to disentangle competing claims of loyalty. When the classroom discussion worked, the students would gradually begin to identify all of the conflicting considerations that go into making a sound moral choice. On the one hand, you have a close friendship with Mary who trusts you implicitly and expects you to keep her secret. Friendships matter and protecting it is certainly a worthy goal. Moreover, you love Mary's family and you know that she needs the $10,000 scholarship more than just about anyone else in the class. More practically, you also don't want Mary to be angry with you or to risk losing the friendship by blowing the whistle on her scheme. These are all legitimate goods of different weight. But on the other hand you also have relationships with the other contestants, all of whom are playing by the rules and deserve a fair shot. In addition, you know and respect the faculty advisor who has run the spelling bee for years and has done so with scrupulous attention to the integrity of the competition. More abstractly, you also are beginning to appreciate the intrinsic importance of honesty and fairness to collective human activity in general, and the harm that can be done to community if cheating is permitted and social institutions become corrupted. In your heart, you also suspect that over the long haul, Mary will be better off if she learns now, rather than later, that deception is no way to get ahead in. These, two are all legitimate and important goods to be weighed in the balance. Now, what makes such moral conundrums challenging is that there is a felt urgency and intensity to the claims of our closest friends and family members, when compared to the more distant claims of people we don't know or like as much. There is a basic human instinct, I think, in all of us to circle the wagons around those closest to us. A tribal instinct, you might call it. Even when we see that the common good is urging us to speak up for justice and those innocent people who are being harmed by the actions of those we love. The question is, where do we strike the balance? Well, our scriptures this morning are helpful in answering this question. In our reading from Acts, for example, Saint Peter is confronted with the question whether the early church should welcome foreigners and strangers into the body of Christ, or whether Jesus' ministry is limited to the Jewish people. Although Peter is initially drawn toward the latter view A vision he receives from God, which is described in Acts, convinces him that Christ's redemptive acts are indeed universal in scope and that God's new covenant extends to everybody. God shows no partiality, Peter preaches to the crowd, but in every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable. Christ is not just Lord to some, Peter insists, but Lord to all. Partisanship and tribalism have no place in God's kingdom. Christ is the light to all nations and to all peoples. More subtly, perhaps, but no less decisively, this message of universal redemption is also at the core of Jesus' baptism in the River Jordan which we heard in our gospel lesson. The early church fathers were on the whole embarrassed by this text, the scene of John baptizing Jesus. Why? Well, because if Jesus is God himself, holy, good, pure, and without sin, why on earth would he have to repent and be cleansed from sin in the waters of baptism? The answer is that Jesus didn't need to be baptized but rather that Jesus willingly and graciously chose to immerse himself in the muck and mire of human brokenness as a selfless act of solidarity with our condition as sinners. The one who knew no sin freely took on our sin out of pure love. And Christ did this not just for his disciples, not just for his Jewish brothers and sisters, not just for those folks he liked, but for all of humanity, for you and me, for the wayward as well as the righteous. Christ's baptism, just like his death and resurrection to come, is for everybody. And just so, the scope of Christian ethics is universal in its reach and refuses to prefer one set of relationships, whether they be family, friends, tribes, or nation-states, over the good of all humanity. And for this reason, when we are baptized and when we affirm our baptismal promises, the promises we make crucially include Commitments to seek and serve Christ in all persons, to strive for justice and peace among all peoples, and to respect the dignity of every human being. This seems so obvious, doesn't it? I hope so. And yet when we turn to our political leaders in Washington, on both the right and the left, It seems as if our public moral discourse these days is driven not by a dedication to the common good and welfare, but by self-interest, partisanship, polarizing rhetoric, and group identity politics that puts the welfare of some ahead of the interests of all. Now, 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 perhaps more than ever, Faithful Christians around the globe need to hold their political leaders accountable to the core values of the Judeo-Christian tradition, to speak and act truthfully, to pursue justice for all people, to attend to the weak and defenseless, to care for our creation, to eschew violence and promote peace, and to practice the way of love that Jesus teaches in its deepest sense. To affirm our baptism in Christ is to commit ourselves to these moral values. To paraphrase the great Anglican theologian Rowan Williams, to say I'm baptized is emphatically not to boast that I am saved and you are not, as if we are somehow superior to the rest of the human race, but rather, following Jesus, to be baptized, is to claim a new level of solidarity with all people, especially those who are innocent, vulnerable, and lacking in power. And to be in solidarity with such others means regarding their needs and hopes and dreams as every bit as important as our own. This is why, to return to our hypothetical, the very best thing we can do for Mary is to gently but firmly steer her away from the path of deceit, manipulation, and self-interest she has chosen, and to show her instead that we are all in this together, Brothers and sisters in Christ, saved not by our own feeble and flawed efforts, but by the grace of the one who immerses himself in the muddy waters of our brokenness and makes us all beautiful children of God again. This is what it means to be baptized in Christ. To see the world with the clarity of Jesus' eyes, and to embrace it with the compassion of his heart. To love God with all our might and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And finally, to hold fast to all that is true and noble, just and pure, beautiful and gracious, excellent and admirable, just as our Savior did before us.